Thank you, and good morning. That was terrible. <laughs> Charles Barkley would say, that's terrible. Good morning. Yeah, I was like, y'all got some issues this morning. I'm about to preach hard. Uh, here's what the Postal Service says. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night, and we'll change it, keeps Fall Fellowship from doing right. So we're going to be there. No doubt. And I'm glad to see a lot of you here this morning. I was a little bit concerned because I saw that whether in person or online, you were attending a fake worship service yesterday, <laughs> sang the football hymn, Rocky Top, and all that. So really, <laughs> really thankful that you need to repent and come here about real worship of the King. All right. Well, at least you got smiles on your faces this morning. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Uh, last week, you may remember, if you were here online, I mentioned as I was setting up for communion that I've always been interested in and sort of fascinated uh, in this word, uh, remember, or as we'll say this morning, remembering well or remembering biblically. Uh, 240 times this word remember is in our entire Bible. And as I read a vast majority of those passages this week, you, you could sum up the primary usage of the word remember is a command for us to remember who we are, who God is, and what God has done for us. That's how I would sum it up. He does this obviously, because we forget. And when I think about remembering and forgetting, the thing that it gets is, I've been traumatized by it, my wife was traumatized by it, and that is on the way home from Colorado, staff training with Campus Crusade one summer, I forgot her birthday. And as she says, I wonder what it feels like to be whatever it was at the time, 27. I said, I don't know, you'll feel like, you'll know when you get there, you'll feel it. And she looked at me and says, I'm there. Oh, God. I looked, tried to make a, a restaurant reservation. They said they didn't have any. I said, fine, I'll buy the restaurant. You know, it, it was a complete mess. Here's why he does this. Because obviously we not only forget, but when we do forget, it is a pathway, a certain painful pathway to lukewarm Christianity, a certain, certain ditch that we get in that makes us fake it until we make it, or we hit eject off together. And a part of remembering, sort of its first cousin, is another word that I've used in the title this morning called rehearsing, remembering well and rehearsing well. And for our sake this morning, just in terms of definition, we'll define it as uh, rehearsing well as what we say to ourselves over and over and over, no matter how good or how terrible we are doing, no matter the circumstances, we rehearse what we're going to talk about this morning. And what do we rehearse? The same thing we are to, we are to remember, who we are, who God is, and what he has done. As humans, though, here's what I think really happens. Not only do we forget who we are and who God is and what God has done, 
and is doing because you know he ain't dead, right? But we turn these two great disciplines of remembering and rehearsing well that are here to help us see the grace and the glory of God our King and we make it all about ourselves. <laughs> Folks, if that ain't humans, that's what we do. We remember all of our worst times, and then we rehearse these worst times over and over, which drives us down to despair and discouragement. And what happens is Satan comes in, and he whispers these things about us that we know are true. He gets the tape going, and then he's got that tape going. He ain't got to hang around because you just keep turning the same tape on, and so do I. <clears throat> this causes us to be cold spiritually and emotionally. Matter of fact, I think it's one of Satan's great strategies, if you could call it great, hurtful strategies to stunt us in our spiritual growth. Here's how C.S. Lewis in his book, The Scar Tape, Screw Tape Letters, put it. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Yes, he keeps out of our minds and hearts the things that we are to remember and the things that we are to rehearse. And God's intent is that his people would both remember and rehearse well in order to, and here's the benefit, to turn up, if you would, the heat of our affections and our emotions for our great king to engage intentionally our minds and hearts so that they are affected deeply with the truth of who we are, who God is, and what he has done and doing. So I'm so thankful for our text this morning because Paul, with like laser-like clarity, tells us exactly what we are to remember and what we are to rehearse. So let me read for us Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Paul writes, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself <clears throat> is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one, <clears throat> one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, th thereby killing the hostility. <clears throat> so the first thing he tells us to do is to remember at one time, and I put in your notes, alienation. We've been alienated. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. The privileges now enjoyed by Gentile believers must be drilled into the mind in light of the status in which they were delivered. 
And that's exactly what Paul is saying in verses 11 and 12. Here's the reality. You and I can never feel great gratitude for God's grace if we don't remember clearly from where we came from. The magnitude of our condition before Christ must be remembered to really understand and rejoice in the magnitude of what God has done for us in Christ. Fogginess, put it this way, in the bad news will certainly display itself as apathy in the good news. No doubt. You probably already have noticed that verses 11, 16 parallel the big picture of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Did you notice that? If you didn't, wake up, okay? But it's from a different angle. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, the bad news is there. And then we see the words, but God. And in our text, the bad news is in verses 11 and 12. Then we see the words, what? But now. And here's the different angle. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, not the entirety, but the primary focus <clears throat> is the individual Christian or individual believer. And the emphasis in our text mainly of chapter 2, 11 through 16, or really you could say chapter 2, 11 through 22, which Monty will finish up next week. The main focus there, it's corporately. It's about the body of Christ, about those who are, in, who are God's covenant people. And we know this because if you read ahead later uh, this afternoon or this week, you'll see in 19 through 22, Paul says we are being built together into a holy temple where the Lord himself dwells via his spirit. So Paul is repeating himself in a sense, but with a different angle, because we may or may not have said this before, but the gospel is like a diamond, and it has all these angles and shapes, and every time you turn it, you can see a different angle of the gospel and how it impacts and influences us. So back to verse 11. Paul uses this word Gentiles. It was a Jewish expression, if you would, for anybody that was an outsider. It was considered who was considered by Jews as an outsider to Israel. It, they were from the nations versus from the nation, and they were called heathens by Jews. Now I've been called a heathen before, back in the day, uh, for certainly I was. But that's how Jews sort of poked at. Uh, the Gentiles. The Jews were both conscious of their unique status with God while also very conscious of God calling them to be separate from the nations or separate from the Gentiles or surrounding nations. While at the same time, they also knew, the Old Testament is full of this, that Gentiles actually could become converted Jews. They were called proselytes. And those that did convert, they had to do some things. They had to get circumcised, the man did, and they had to submit to the Torah, etc. So what happens here is Christ now enters the world in the midst of this ethnic hatred for one another. The Jew hates the Gentile, and the Gentile hates the Jew. And a Jew, just for some historical commentary here, 
uh, racism, and we'll talk about that later in this passage, it's not a new thing, folks. The Jew would not enter a Gentile's home. He would not eat food that a Gentile had fixed or was eating. He would not reach over and grab something off the plate of a Gentile and say, can I taste your tater like I did my wife's plate last night? When he went to the marketplace, they would come home and take a complete bath from head to toe, afraid that they might have been contaminated by the Gentiles that were moving through the marketplace. It was for sure a stigma to be a heathen Jew. Matter of fact, there was, and I read several, but there was this particular famous rabbi prayer. I thank God that I am not a Gentile. <laughs> Sad, but true. So when Paul says, remember, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised, what he is saying is they lack the physical mark of circumcision, or they lack the mark of God's covenant with, on their body with his people. Now notice there, as Paul uses the term, uh, he says the Jews, the Jews are what he calls in our text the uncircumcision. He's reminding the Gentiles, or the Jews are the circumcision. He's reminding the Gentiles that they're the uncircumcision. And here's what happens is uh, that status of being uncircumcised caused the Jews to sort of taunt, sort of make fun of, sort of mock, sort of name call the Gentile. The uncircumcised, there they go. That's how it sort of worked out socially and relationally. The uncircumcised heathen Gentiles, the reality of where they were spiritually is they lacked the outward sign of circumcision, no doubt that they were part of God's family and people. And this also was a reflection to the truth that they had an internal estrangement from God. Good job, Jeff. From God because their hearts were still uncircumcised. But the irony is this. That's a circumcised Jew, although they had an external circumcision, uh, circumcision, an external mark that they were part of God's covenant people, they also needed a circumcision of the heart that they were very unaware of. In reality, both the Jew and the Gentile needed the same things. The Jew trusted in this covenant mark, which what did it cause? You think about folks that we know, or maybe you before Christ, or maybe you if you don't know Christ. The things we trusted in before we trusted in the death and shed blood of Christ for salvation was we trusted in us. We trusted in our own goodness, did we not? And what did it produce in us? It produced pride. It produced defensiveness. It produced this, this attitude of I'm better and I'll make my case to show you. That's exactly what it produced in the heart of the Jews. The Jews trusted in this covenant mark and it made them prideful and it ultimately made them hypocrites because we know they were only concerned with what? The external. A lot of secrets when you're only concerned with the external. Here's how Paul put it 
when he was looking at the Jew and Gentile and circumcision in Romans 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Because Jeremiah and other prophets have told us you need a circumcision of, circumcision of the heart. But a Jew, Paul says, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. So Paul tells us to remember this. And then in verse 12, Paul now lays out with this incredible, succinct, crystal clarity of the status of every person before Christ. And what he does, and I put five words there to describe it. He says they're Christless, <clears throat> stateless, friendless, hopeless, <clears throat> and godless. It is a depressing list. Let's quickly run through this to these to define them. The first term is Christless. How Paul put it in verse 12 is that these people are separated from Christ. I want you to think about this. Think about being without Christ now that you are with Christ. It is a haunting <clears throat> expression and reality. And I felt that yesterday, just thinking to be without Christ would be so just nauseating. It means you have no mediator between you and God, that you are standing before God on your own merit and goodness alone, before a holy and righteous and perfect God. Go read Isaiah 6, and you'll see Isaiah's response to that. We know that Job was so tormented over his pain and suffering, he thought, I don't deserve this. So he thought he could go stand before God and show his own goodness. And as he approached, he stopped in his tracks, and he realized that he would have to make his case before a holy God alone, that there's no one between him and a holy God. All we are is laid bare before a perfect God. It's why the writer of Hebrews, as we talked that book a while back, said very clearly, they has to be a mediator. He says there is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And folks, that makes all the difference. So to live without Christ is a tragedy. To die without Christ is an eternal tragedy. Christless. And then the second word is stateless. Paul puts it this way in verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. What does he mean? Well, the commonwealth of Israel speaks of God's chosen and privileged people. It's one way that the Jews describe being a part of the people of God. It's a big deal to be a part of the commonwealth of Israel, to be chosen the people of God. So to those who are without Christ... In, in the New Covenant way to put it, it is people who were without a nation or a family or a community to be a part of. It will not matter, matter of fact, one iota, when you die and stand before Christ, whether you're from America or North Korea, <laughs> it will matter if you've trusted Christ. What matters is that we belong to this spiritual wealth of Israel, a nation and a people that will last forever. And as humans, here's the beautiful news for us, as humans who are hardwired to belong, it's part how the image of God gives us these desires 
to belong to a people, to a community, to a family, this is great news for us because we are a part, if you know Christ, of the uh, Trinity community, if you would, Father, Son, and Spirit, the first community and the community of God's people is why we talk about connecting withward with this body that you and I are a part of. <clears throat> the third word that Paul uses or phrase is friendless, and here's how he puts it in verse 12. He calls them strangers to the covenant. This means to be spiritually clueless or ignorant of God's truth and promises. If we are strangers to God's covenant promises, then we are ignorant of, maybe put it that way, ignorant of God's redemptive history and how this history unfolds. And that's so crucial because the promises of the promise of the gospel is this, I will be your God and you will be my people. So a non-Christian, he does not see, he cannot see what God does to make a person a Christian through Christ. All he sees if we're honest, is what he has done and what he has done based on the others, typically, as he compares themselves with the world, is enough. It's like going to a foreign country. Now, I'm as American as you can get, as Southern as you can get, as countryfied as you can get. So I thought about where would I go to a country that I would sort of feel out of place? I thought Italy. Now, I don't know who said it, because <laughs> if I knew, I might make you see Jesus today. <clears throat> I was going to get there with myself. <laughs> if I went to Missouri, I would feel out of the place, ain't no doubt. But I thought France, Italy, things are very, maybe England even, very proper there, right? I don't even know where I'm at in my notes. I need at least 10 more minutes, at least. Oh, here it is. Sorry. <laughs> that was really funny. Uh, if I went to France, it'd be like a, going to France as a foreigner. I don't know the language. I don't know the culture. But then when I get there, I act like I'm an expert in it. <laughs> That's what this is. So the fourth word is hopeless. Having no hope is how Paul put it in verse 12. And, and it, it, when, when you think about having no hope, it is what non-Christians have every day of their life. What despair, what meaningless, what emptiness to be without biblical hope, which is the word for certainty. The certainty is I am a sinner and have been saved by a great Savior. Our certain hope in Christ is the very foundation for this life and the life to come. If we are hopeless, then here's what we know. This life is as good as it gets. Drink, get drunk, do whatever you wish. Be merry, for tomorrow you die and rot in the ground while bugs eat your flesh. That's it. If, if we had no hope, 
then why not live like that? I've also heard people say, well, as I've had conversations with them, well, I, I have my hope in the goodness of community, the goodness of people that live in our community. Oh, that's what it feels like, right? I mean, having hope in the goodness of man is like having hope there's no gravity when you jump off a 40-story building. I don't believe in gravity. Okay. <laughs> and then the fifth word, a phrase Paul uses is godless or without God in the world. For clarity, it does not mean those who are atheists. The Gentiles were not atheists. They had many, many gods in whom they placed their fake hope in. It means, though, without the true God. It is a statement that means to be without the true knowledge of God himself. And it fits the description of what Paul writes in Romans 1, where he calls people like this who are godless. He calls them truth suppressors who worship the creature rather than creator. For the Gentiles' history here was going nowhere. No Messiah, no hope. This is who you were. Paul says, remember, that is true. No matter how nice you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how professional you are, how proper you are, how much money you have, how much nice clothes you have, how clean you are, this is who you were before Christ. And if you remember that, what comes next, you got a great chance. I got a great chance to be stunned with the glory of the living God because the writer Paul says what? But now. In verses 13 through 16. To rehearse the but now. Over and over and over. No matter how bad spiritually we're doing. No matter how tough life is. But now. There's great relief with those two words. But now. Martin Lord Jones says. Do you feel at times that the greatest word in all of humanity is the word but? Say yes we do. Right. And if you do not, he says, your understanding of Christianity is highly defective. There you were, but now. And with those two words, immediately our heads rise to the heavens. Our hearts are full of God's kindness and mercy. Our eyes are penetrated with the light of Christ himself. And there is hope. The but now is the but of biblical hope, certainty. And it's the end of despair and gloom. Now, I want you to be clear here. It is not the end of sadness. We live in a broken world. God gave us our emotions, and we're, we're actually doing that with 25 guys on Monday nights here. It is not the end of grief. It is not the end of hurt. But it is... It is the antidote to despair. So important in remembering the but now. And the reason is, or see how important it is to remember the but now. Because the but now is not so glorious and dazzling unless we're convinced of the at one time. 
And how is it that God brings about this but now? He tells us it is our reconciliation through the gospel. It is the term Paul uses there in verse 13, brought near. That's the word reconciliation. When Paul says, but now in Christ you have been brought near, he is sending a spiritual flare, if you would, to the world that both the Jew and Gentile need the blood of Christ, which circumcises their heart to be brought near to God. To the Jew, he's saying, you're not near to God by virtue of the blood that runs in your veins, but you're near to God by virtue of you trusting in the blood of your Messiah, Christ. So Paul says here, by the blood, reconciled by the blood of Christ, is speaking in this application of the vertical reconciliation between God and man. And typically, on a human way, as we think of uh, reconciliation, we typically think of two people or groups that have complaints and grievances, and someone helps them. Someone comes in as a mediator and helps them work through these complaints and grievances. Do we not? We may have experienced some of those ourselves, not only relationally, but in the court of law. Here, this is not gospel reconciliation because there is only one party that has a right to be angry. There's only one party who has been wronged, and that is God. There's only one party that has a grievance against sinners, and it is God. We are the problem. Matter of fact, something would radically change in mine and your life if every morning when we got up and we looked in the mirror and we reminded ourselves, based on our text today, here's a great memory to remember, I am the problem. That would help, that would help your walk with Christ and your marriage. Be careful because you're the problem, verse 11 and 12. And while we are the problem, this is still, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Paul says, while you are the problem, but God, Romans 5, 8, shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the problem, God reconciles us to himself through his shed blood. All that is wrong with us in verses 11 and 12 the remedy or antidote is found in the blood. Some call this old slaughterhouse religion. God calls it the only way you will spend eternity with me. It's through the precious blood of my son. The blood of Christ turns away the wrath of God, atones for our sins, and gives us access to God. And speaking of wrath, as Christ was on the cross shedding and spilling his blood, at the same time he was also absorbing the wrath of God for the sins of all time, of all men, past, present, and future, so that you and I could have the great privilege are drawing near to God. But not only do we need to rehearse to ourselves this truth of reconciliation, but we also need to look at reconciliation and how it affects <clears throat> horizontal relationships. 
and relationships with different ethnicities. Let me read verse 14 for us again. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, we all know, especially in the last few years, that we are living in a culture that is obsessed with race. Are we not? Matter of fact, I've said to several people, when everything is racism, it undermines the real evil of racism when it occurs. And not only do I care about it because I'm a Christ follower, but I also have a black daughter. And I want her to know more than anything what God says about racism. So I ask the question, what is it that God says about us as people? And is it sufficient to speak to racism, to our identity, to our unity, and our relationships with one another? That's the question I must ask. It is the question you must ask and answer. And it is the question she, my daughter, must ask and answer. And absolutely the answer is yes. But there's sort of this very dangerous hermeneutic going hermeneutic going around in a culture. Hermeneutic is simply a big word for how we study the Bible, how we find truth. And the danger is people are recommending that we read books, some good, some terrible, about this before we read the book. What this book says trumps what all of them say in order to deal with horizontal relationships. So I believe in racial reconciliation and relational reconciliation with others simply because I believe the Bible. And the good news is we don't have to achieve racial reconciliation. We don't have to achieve relational oneness because it's already been achieved for us in Christ. We do have to apply the truth that's been achieved for us. The reality is, biblically, is there is one race because you and I all have the same parents. No race is more or less sinful than the other. Many ethnicities, yes, but one race. Paul tells us because of the blood of Christ, we don't just quit fighting one another. This is what he says. We actually become one another. He says two races, Jew and Gentile, become what? One. Which makes us, those who believe, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we know from experience that many of us are much closer to other Christians than we are to our own family. Somebody say amen to that. Because family crazy. I'm the only one in my family that ain't, right? It really is an amazing reality, though. So I want to grow in my understanding of different ethnicities and cultures. That's beautiful. God made them all. But I want to have the biblical and racial relational reconciliation. And to do that, we need the blood of Christ. Back to our specific context. As I was thinking about the Jew and Gentile history... And I gave you a little bit of it. I was really stunned 
to the fact that God made the Jew and Gentile one, racially, culturally, socially, and spiritually through the blood of Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the racial tension and division and hatred was real and deep and long. And their oneness now in Christ, it really is more than, hey, let's just sort of get along now. That's a kind of theology. It's more than that, and here's why. One, destroy the dividing wall of hostility, Paul says. He tells us that's why. As we said, there was this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile in every way possible that you could think of, especially concerning the Jewish temple. Here's how Josephus, the great Jewish historian who lived in the times of Christ and wrote about Christ, here's how he put it. He says, he tells us there was a granite slabs or slabs with warnings to the Gentiles about their entrance in the Jewish temple. In some excavation uh, in 1871, one of these slabs was discovered, and here's what it said. No man of another race is to enter the fence enclosure in the temple, and whoever is caught will be killed immediately. So I was thinking, these Jewish rabbis, they're not very seeker-friendly, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Only those with Jewish blood could enter into certain parts of the temple for worship. You can do your own study. didn't have time to get all that. Here's what we know. In Acts 21, Paul is accused of taking Gentiles into the temple, and it starts a riot, and his life is threatened as he starts to get beaten, where a Roman soldier actually has to step in. And from Acts 21 to Acts 28, what we have there is this controversy of can you take Gentiles into the temple? And to be clear, the sign that I mentioned, the granite slab that I mentioned, that Josephus quoted, is not the dividing wall Paul is speaking here of. Although, look, it's a great illustration. Paul here is talking about the many regulations of the law that made a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Follow me here. Like, we've mentioned circumcision, like dietary laws, like close contact, like eating meals together, the feast and Jewish ceremonies, like the priesthood. All of it was a dividing wall relationally between the Jew and the Gentile, and it was a constant daily reminder in Jerusalem and throughout the nation of division and disunity and hatred between these two folks. Paul calls them, in our text, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Or these things were the old covenant. And Paul says both to the Jew and to the Gentile, Jesus Christ <clears throat> has abolished it, he says in the text, in his flesh, which simply means his death on the cross, and this is how this dividing wall was demolished. Now, let me explain that. Now here's what we know about Jesus. Jesus, the scriptures tells us, did not abolish the law, the scriptures tell us, but actually what? Fulfilled it, and here's how he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it by obeying the moral law perfectly. Think Ten Commandments and beyond. 
and then giving you and I the power to obey as well that we didn't have before he came inside of us through his spirit. But Jesus did lay down his life and fulfilled or became all things that made the distinctions between the Jew and the Gentile real. So here's what he demolished. He demolished all these distinctions that caused this division and hatred like the temple. He says, now you don't have to go in that building because the temple is you and I reside in you. Like the sacrifices, no longer needed because the ultimate sacrifice was myself. No longer do you need a priest because I am your priest and mediator. No longer do you do it, need circumcision, an outward sign of an inner reality. We are circumcised of the heart and we have this thing called what? Baptism. So all the regulations, ordinances, find their perfect fulfillment in the great Lord Jesus. And this, in verse 15, he says he creates one new man in the place of two. Early church fathers, and I put this on your note, was interesting how they worded it. They said there's three races. There's a Jew, there's a Gentile, and there's a Christian. The Christians are a third race because of what Paul wrote here. And then lastly, verse 16, just to God, Paul sort of puts his stamp on the end of this text with the obvious, and that is that Jesus, that the Jew and the Gentile have also been reconciled to God. That reconciliation simply means that we were once enemies of God, verses 11 and 12, and now we have become his friends through the blood of Christ. And hostility was now killed between God and man. A, a maybe plain way to put it is God is no longer angry with you if you're in Christ. Think about that. Here's how Milton Vincent put it. And I'll put this quote in your notes in his book that I, Monty and I both have recommended many times, a gospel primer for Christians. And I want to add one word to the beginning of his quote. Remembering and rehearsing, that's two words actually, the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than the daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell that I deserve. You want to change life? There it is right there. Very intentional. Here's your so what. Lord, help me with everything I possibly can do, practically, spiritually, emotionally, using friends to remind me, writing on my mirror in the bathroom. Help me to remember and rehearse well. It's a game changer. Take a minute to ponder that, how you might apply that to your life.
spirit of prayer that you're in we want to continue and we do this once a month where you get to text in prayer requests very personal prayer requests they stay with us we pray for the ones we get to here and we follow up in our elders meeting with others and uh, so the number is 615-205-4367 text your prayer request to that number And we want to pray for the body. It matters that we pray with you and for you uh, as your elders. There will also be two folks on the end here, uh, Rob and Carrie, uh, will be on the end if you'd like to come forward and, uh, and just have someone pray over you right now. That would be great as well. We'll start in just a minute. You can go ahead and send your text in there. morning we're so grateful for this text that you teach us how to remember who we who we were who you are and what you have done in Christ boy we get that wrong so much I get that wrong so much I pray you would do this sweet work in us where the the tapes of our souls are running over and over about what we have learned this morning As we are grateful for your shed blood that, again, as we mentioned, allows access to you, Uh, I come to you on behalf of a husband um, who needs a job or is starting a new job and uh, for safety as he drives. Lord, thanks for his provision. I pray you would encourage him on this drive. You would certainly protect him physically. But even, Lord, that you and he could meet on that drive in all different kind of ways that would take form. But that would be a sweet time of remembering and rehearsing what we've talked about this morning. Lord, someone mentioned a a pastor who has uh, turned away from the faith and... uh, Lord, we are in such a time of cultural confusion, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, shed light in the darkness, bring clarity about what is true, Lord, help us to be uh, kind and gracious with each other, and yet also speak the truth in love when, uh, when it's appropriate to do so. Lord, help us as a people live in the truth Lord there's a parent who is praying for a daughter to have a but God and but now moment I pray for this young lady that uh, she would experience that that she would recognize that 
the but God moment has changed everything. And I pray that she would walk in a but now well with you. I pray for this parent, this, this parent prays for this daughter, that, Lord, you would have your way. You know what Jeff mentioned this morning with the power of that word, but, and how it changes the course of life and eternity. And, Lord, there was a, a guy here, a person here who needs a job. I missed that. So, Lord, we pray that you would provide a job and it would be very clear that it came directly from you. And I pray during the uh, meantime that, and I've been in that situation before I came here, there's anxiety, there's fear. I pray, Lord, you would press upon him that you do not sleep and you do not slumber, that you're fully aware that he needs a job. And in doing so, he would cry out to you and rest in you both until you provide. And then I pray uh, for this mother. Somebody's praying for their mother would come to Christ and be saved. So, yes, Lord, uh, we ask you to move in her life. Pray even you would uh, use uh, this son or daughter in her life. So we lift this mother up to your throne. Lord, I pray for uh, the spouse of someone who is uh, just in a, in a tough spot, um, feeling the pull of uh, temptation and struggle. Lord, uh, we all find our way into those places, and we need you to meet us there to... Uh, Psalm 40 says, set our feet upon a rock and make our footsteps firm. Lord, would you turn the heart of this spouse back to you, back to the truth, back to life and grace and mercy and peace? Would you change their heart and their life? In Jesus' name. Father, I pray for a college student who goes back to school, who's praying for a rich community of Christians back in that town, and also for one that they love will be able to see Christ more clearly. Uh, what a mission field that is and a particularly tough part of life. And so I pray that this student would go and experience rich relationship with you and with others and that horizontal relationship that we need and their walk with you would be strengthened and deepened at uh, school as they return back to their town. Stand with me this morning as, as we close up. Lord Jesus, we are a grateful people. Mm -hmm. We want to be full of gratitude. It, it leaves us quickly. It's, and, and, and it does so when we don't remember and rehearse this great gospel message that you, we talked about this morning and you put in your word for, for such a day as this. And so I do pray that we would do you would help us do a great job of remembering and rehearsing well. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for what you're doing in us and in this church. Pray you would use us in this community. And everyone said, amen.